0: We're back again for uh, another look at the Chumash, starting almost at the very beginning. And um, it's good to see familiar faces. Welcome to to some new faces. (coughs) Anyone who's able to uh, put themselves on video, uh, it makes it all the better to see you with And, tov mare enayim mehalach nafesh, as Kohala says. Uh, It's it's a pleasure to be able to see the people, if possible, if convenient, um, that I'm uh, talking to. Uh, I just want to mention, before we begin, that uh, Baruch Hashem recently published the uh, Sefer on Chumash, the first volume of the Sefer, it's called Dimensions in Chumash, here it is. And the first volume is on uh, Brecious and Shamos. It's available uh, in uh, bookshops here in Israel, in the United Kingdom, in, in the States, and I uh, hope uh, whoever gets hold of it um, enjoys it. It's based on the, the highlights of the Shear <coughs> from, from over the years. Well, what better way to, to introduce <coughs> our discussions on the Chumash Then, by referring to just a few days back. It may seem like a long time ago already. Sukkos and Simchas Torah. And there's a classic comment, Baruch Soloveitchik, with regards to Sukkos and Simchas (coughs) Torah, because he notes that we actually perform Hakophos on both of these festivals. We have the Hakophos, we have the circuits on every day of Sukkos, and we have thus these circuits on Simchas Torah as well, with one difference, and that is that on Sukkot we circle the bima, holding mitzvah objects, lulav and esrog, and in the center at the bima is the Sefer Torah. In contrast to this, on Simchas Torah. We circle the bima, holding the Sefer Torah. And at the center, at the bima, there's no one. What is the meaning of these two sets of Hakofos? Rasul Ovechik explains (coughs) that whenever you have a circle, whatever is at the center of the circle is what the circle is all about. And what happens at the edge of the circle is the way to get to the center. Throughout the days of sukkahs, at the center of the circle is the Torah. And the question is, how do you get to the Torah? How does a person gain insight into Torah, deeper understanding? And the answer is through mitzvahs. We hold mitzvah objects, we hold the lulav and esrog at the circumference of the circle to show that the way that we will be able to attain greater insight into Torah is through the fulfillment of the mitzvahs, through experiencing what the Torah mandates and discusses and through that we'll get understanding of the Torah itself. That's what happens throughout the course of Sukkot, And then, on Simcha's Torah, we take the Torah itself and in the middle there's no one. Meaning, there is no person there. But there is someone there. The Gemara in Masechistan, it's a, it's a famous uh, statement of the Gemara, that in the future, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will be at the center of the circle and sadikim will be encircled around him. And that's what's happening on Simcha's Torah. There's no one standing there because there's no physical person there. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is there. <coughs> and the question is, how do you get to the center of the circle? How do you get to encounter Hakodesh Baruch Hu himself. And the answer is, what's at the circumference of the circle? The Sifrei Torah. It's through the learning of Torah that we develop a connection with Hakodesh Baruch Hu. And there is no better introduction, I believe, to shiurim and investigations on the Torah than to realize that what we're doing is we're looking ultimately to get closer to Hakodesh Baruch Hu. And I believe there's room to add that perhaps there is, there's another type of hakafah that we do with the Sefer Torah. On Simcha's Torah, we physically take it and we, we go around in a circle. We circle the bima, But there's another type of circle. It's the yearly Torah cycle. And it takes a year. It doesn't take five minutes. It takes a year. But with that, we also circle around with the Torah. And <coughs> indeed, I think it is apt to describe... Our, our new series, and any new series, Learning the Chumash, as another hakafah with the Sefer Torah to try and get ever closer, ever higher levels of information, illumination, and inspiration. So with those humble goals in mind, let us take a look at Parshas Noach. As we know, one of the interesting features of Tevas Noach is the Tzohar. He's told <coughs> to provide a light source, and that is to be found or referred to in Perik Vav Pasuk Ted Zion. So, if you have a Chumash handy, and it's recommended to have a Chumash handy with Rashi if possible, Perik Vav Halacha Ted Zion. And the Pasuk states, Sohar Tasilateva. Noah is told. To, to build the teva such and such amos such and such amount of cubits long wide high etc and one of the specifications is sohar tasila teva what is sohar sohar comes from the word tzaharayim, that is to say it is a light source sohar and zohar are very similar concepts something to provide light but where will the light come from rashi cites two opinions in the Medrash, actually also in the Gemara. Yesh Omrim Chalon. Some people say that the Tzohar is a window. A window will let in light. V'yesh <speaking in Hebrew> Omrim, and others say, Even <speaking in> Tova <Hebrew> It was a luminous stone that provided light for them. So here we have these two opinions as to what the Tzohar is. It's either... Uh, one could say just letting natural light in through the, through the window, or <coughs> it is providing light through this luminous stone. Rashi does not uh, arbiter or choose between these two opinions. He mentions both of them as if to indicate that both are equally acceptable interpretations and plausible explanations as to what this sohar might be. Could be a window, could be a luminous stone. We don't know. <coughs> and what's very interesting is that Rafarshim want, want to understand why we don't know. The answer to this question, the correct understanding of Tzohar, would seem to be explicitly mentioned in the Pasuk just a little bit later on. And that is, in Perik, in Perikhes Posukvav, let's see what happens there. Perikhes Posukvav. We're skipping over the flood, we will get back to it. But in Perikhes Posukvav, it states Bayhi Mikates Arba'im Yom after forty days, Baiftaf Noach eshalon Hateva Asher. Asa. Noah opened the window of the Teva. And this now puts us in an interesting situation, <coughs> because there does no longer need to be speculation as to what this sohar might be. Was there a window? Was there a luminous stone? You have the answer in front of you in just one or two chapters' time. It's Chalon HaTeva, Asher asa. QED. It's a Chalon, it's a window. And this is a question that is raised on Rashi. But what is very interesting is, <coughs> the commentators of Rashi explain that, if anything, this would seem to support the idea that the Sohar was not a window. That it was a luminous stone? How so? I mean, it says window. However, as Mefarshim point out, <laughs> as much as the later verse refers to Khalon, a window, but let's ask a simple question. So then why is it not called a window from the outset? Initially, Noah is told to make a tzohar, whatever that is. Subsequently, we find a reference to chalom, to a window. But that itself should serve to indicate that they're not the same thing. Because if they were, it should have just referred to them the same way in both cases. Either both times tzohar or both times chalon. But if it's one time sohar and the second time chalon it sounds like the tzohar is not a window. That's, that's a, an interesting pushback to, <clears throat> to what would seem to be a, a, a very simple resolution here. And should we ask, well, if there was a window, why do you need a luminous stone? At the end of the day, it's clear from the POSIC that there was a window. Well, the answer may very practically be a window is not going to provide light anytime you need it. It will not provide light at night. And without putting too fine a point on it, if the weather is cloudy outside, it might not provide too much light either. And therefore, as much as you may need the chalom, this window, for other purposes, there is still ample necessity to have an independent light source in the form of this luminous stone. That is the first point. The differentiation of terminology from sohar to chalom perhaps itself indicates that they are two different things. Another interesting point, and we see, and this is for us is, is important, Chinuch, from the great commentators, just how closely to look at the psukim. Because once again, if we come back to that second verse, perikhes Ches, Posuk Vav, what does it say? V'yehi mi arba'im yom, at the end of 40 days, V'yivtach Noach, Noach opens ha HaTeva, the window of the Teva, Asher Asa that he made. Now we always need to keep an eye to have some level of sensitivity to what is seemingly obvious and therefore redundant. If there's a window there, he obviously made it. We don't have references to this type of thing anywhere else in the Parsha. The Torah doesn't say that the animals came to Noah, to the Teva, that he made or that in the end he took the, the covering off the table that he made. If it's there, he made it. He's told to make it. If it's there, he made it. What then is the import of these final two words of Pasuk Vav, the window that he made? And that is why the Taz, Rabbeinu David HaLevi, famous as the author of the Taz, also wrote a commentary on Rashi called Divrei David, explains that if, if we know that Noah made everything, and the pasuk nevertheless emphasizes that he made something, that is to indicate that this is something that he made of his own volition. Whatever he was told to make, we assume he made. If the pasuk nevertheless tells us that he made something, it means even without being told to make it, he made it. But now, If the chalon is referred to in the verse as something that Noach made of his own volition, it can no longer be the tzohar that he was told to make. And that would seem to support, again, the idea that the tzohar is, in fact, a luminous stone. So these are interesting, the the delicacy of the phraseology of the the psukim, we, we we're never really yotze Yidei fully, fully looking at the Pasuk until, until it's finally over. And I'm, I fully, actually do not believe that it's finally over yet. Because I wonder if there's a third point to consider. And that is, again to read Pasuk Vav. At the end of 40 days, Noach opened the window. Now, until relatively recently, If you open a window, that means until that point, the window is closed. And if it's closed, that means that it's shuttered. For a window to be closed, a window at that time is not made of glass. A window, no offense, is a hole in the wall. It's a square hole, but it's a hole. And therefore to be closed means that it's shuttered up. But if the window is there to provide light, why on earth would its default position be closed? That you'd need to open it in order to, 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 to then uh, do something. It should be open the whole time. You need it for light. Apparently, this too is an indication that the window is not there for light, it's there for other purposes, as is evidenced by the fact that normally it's shuttered closed. Where's the light coming from? Somewhere else. Eventova hameira lahem. So these are some of the considerations with, with regards to the interplay between these two verses, Sohar in the beginning and chalon in perekches. But I think there's room to, to further uh, investigate here in the following way. You could say <coughs> that we should be able to find the answer again. Luminous stone versus window. That is the question. We should be able to find the answer very simply as follows. Noach's instructions, or more correctly, HaKadosh Baruch whose instructions to Noach at the beginning of the Parsha, when it comes to making the Teva, can be roughly divided into two sections. Section one, the, the construction of the Teva, the building. Section two, the contents of the table, what to put inside. If we have a look at, the, again, the opening verses, so where does it begin? Pasuk Yodalat, perig Vav, Pasuk Yodalat, or that's very general, it starts Pasuk Tes Vav. Pasuk Tes Vav gives you the dimensions, 300 long, 50 wide, 30 high, that type of thing. Then it tells you what to put in. Well, Pasuk Yotes, <laughs> you should bring the animals in. Pasuk kaf Aleph, Ve'ata Kach Lecha Mikal Bring food in. So we see the earlier group of verses is about the construction specifications of the, of the Teva. The later group is about the contents of the Teva. So now, if we wish to know, what was the tsohar, Was it a window or a luminous stone? The answer is, should be available for us. See where it's grouped. See which, which psukim it's put together with. If it's put together with the construction psukim, so then you know it's an actual window because the window is constructed. If it's put together with the content psukim, you know that it's a stone because the stone is brought inside, just like the animals are and just like the food is. Well, where is tzohar? Sohar is at the beginning of Pasuk Tet Zion, verse sixteen. Tsohar Tasela Teva, and that is firmly ensconced in the group of verses which describe the construction of the Teva. In which case, once again, we seem to have our answer laid out for us. If it's in the construction, so construction. That's a window. How is there room to understand that it's a luminous stone? I saw this question was raised, um, and I was happy to see it raised. I was disturbed to see it raised and not answered. But I wonder whether we may suggest the following answer. In the beginning of Parsha's Tetzaveh, or actually more correctly in Parsha's Truma, it's it's easier. Parsha's Truma discusses the building of the Mishkan. Gold, silver, copper, wool, that thread... Etc., all of the materials. Among them, the verse says in the beginning of Parsha's Truma, Shemen Lama'or, oil for the lighting. The Tosvos, in a collection of comments from Tosvos, Das Zekeini Tosvos, ask us ask a very interesting question <coughs> What is the oil doing, being listed in materials for the building of the Mishkan? After all, the oil is there for one of the mitzvahs that one does in the Mishkan. But that's later on. We don't talk about bringing animals for carbonus, We don't talk about having flour for the various meal offerings. Those are mitzvahs that are done in the Mishkan. But those are later discussions for later Parshios. But currently we're dealing purely with making the Mishkan. What has the oil for the light got to do with the making of the Mishkan? And Tosos a a... a a wonderful and elegant answer. Says the Tosvos, you know what building is? When is a house fully built? Well, depending on who your cablan is, the answer may be never. But in principle, when is a house fully built? <coughs> it's built when it's fit to enter. And when is a house fit to enter? Say the Tosvos, it depends who the house is for. If the house is for a regular person, as soon as you have your walls and a roof, it's fit to enter. But if the house is for the king, a king will never enter a dark room, will never enter a dark house. A house for a king requires illumination in order to make it fit to enter. But that means that the providing of illumination is part of the building of the house. You're never fully built without a light if it's a house for a king. So say the tosos, and that is why the oil for the menorah is mentioned so early, yet at the construction stage of the mishkan. What does that have to do with us? There is a, uh, a fascinating comment of the medrash <coughs> on the pasuk in Tehillim that we're very familiar with. Va'ani v'rov chastacha avobesecha. We say it, it's in the beginning of the Siddur, in your great kindness I come to your house. According to the Medrash, those words were said originally by Noach, thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for being kind to him and bringing him to the Teva. Va'ani v'rov chastacha av'o b'isecha. Now what's fascinating about that Medrash is that it, (coughs) it identifies Noah's Ark as be'secha. Noah is talking to Hashem. When we think of this Pasuk, I come to your house, we assume it's about the Besa Mikdash, or about a shul, perhaps, Mikdash Ma'at. But Noah is using this this terminology to refer to the Teva. (coughs) That tells us that the Teva, Noah's Ark, was Hashem's house. But how is it Hashem's house? What does that mean? What it means is, Everything that is necessary for the continued existence of the world was compacted into the Teva for that year of the flood. And one of the things that you need for the continued existence of the world is the Divine Presence. And that means that the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence itself, was also there in the Teva, and that bestows upon the Teva the status and the designation of Beisecha, of Hashem's house. Well putting two and two together, perhaps we may suggest, if Tosos have told us that when it comes to a house for the king, a house for Hashem, it's not built until you have light. And if the Teva is also called besecha Hashem's house, we can now understand why the command to provide light called a Tzohar is in the construction section of the Teva even if it wasn't window, even if it was a luminous stone, because the provision of light for the king's house is part of the building of the house. So these are some of the uh, concerns and discussions with regards to to the teva. (coughs) But at this point, let's move to the chalone itself, to the window, because the window clearly either was not exclusively used for light, or perhaps not even at all, but it was there and Noah used it. When did Noah use this window? As the psukim and Posukes detail at quite some length <coughs> after the flood, Noah wants to know Has the land dried? What's the state of the world outside? And the way that he does so is in the series of sending forth these birds. Do they come back? Do they stay? What do they bring back with them? It's a whole process, as we know. First the raven, then the dove, then the dove again, Yona Matsubanoach, and then and then he doesn't see the dove again. And my uncle, <coughs> Rabbi Huda Cooperman, Zatzal, <coughs> asked a simple question. What's with the birds? What is with this very seemingly cumbersome and inefficient? way of finding out whether the land has dried. I mean here's a recommendation. Why don't you have a look? Noah is not leaving the taver until he's told to leave. But he can at least look outside. There is a window. Use it It might not let a lot of light inside the taver, but it certainly allows you to see outside the taver. And if that's the case, so if we perhaps may uh, use an expression the way it's not normally used, why is the question of finding whether the land has dried strictly for the birds? And here, Rav Cooperman <coughs> explains, Noah is not allowed to look outside the Teva until he's told to leave. Why would that be? <clears throat> he draws our attention, and here we, we, we proceed carefully, Because the next person who's not allowed to look at destruction is Lot. Isn't that right? As Lot is being hurried out or led out, escorted out at great haste from the city of Sodom, he's told, do not look back. And Rashi explains why not. After all, you've got to be curious. His wife was curious. Anyone would be. But he's not allowed to look back. And Rashi explains, (coughs) Lot was told, as far as you're concerned, your own merit, you should be back there with them. So you don't have the privilege of looking at their destruction from a safe distance, because there's nothing really that, in terms of your own merit, that means that you shouldn't be with them. You are saved in the merit of Avram. You don't get to look back. Now, what does this have to do with Noah? Would we ever suggest, would we ever say, that Noah, of his own... Uh, Merits was not deserving to be saved that's not so the verse calls him a tzaddik there are discussions was he a tzaddik relative to everyone was he a tzaddik uh, regardless that may well be but tzaddik is tzaddik he's not the same as them no one can suggest that Noah also should have been part of the flood so why is he not allowed to, to see the flood he cannot have any visual contact until it's all over The answer, Cesar of Kuperman, is that Noah is not like Lot. When it comes to Lot, (coughs) he can't look back at Sodom, the destruction of Sodom, because he should have been there with them. That's not true of Noah, but something else is true. Noah cannot look at the destruction of his generation because they should have been in here with him. But what does that mean? It refers to the very... Um, difficult question of Noah and his generation. We see that Noah is building the ark over a course of 120 years. People ask him, he tells them. A lot is going on around him. Noah has no part in it. (coughs) But somehow, he doesn't do anything in order to change things, in order to prevail upon people to better their ways. What are his reasons? We don't know. Maybe we can try and find out. But one thing is for sure, and this we see, the greatest criticism, and, and it comes from a source that's allowed to criticize Noach. It's the Novi Yeshaya. It's the Haftura for Parshas Noach. And the Novi Yeshaya refers to the flood as May Noach. And mei noach means Noach's flood. And that's the Navi's way of saying that Noah is considered to be a catalyst in the flood. Perhaps he could have done something. And therefore, <coughs> again, unlike Lot, for whom we say you should have been there, and that's why you can't look, for Noah we say they should have been here, and that's why you can't look. And if you want to know if the ground is dry, use the birds, they'll tell you. There is no other option. <clears throat> and the truth is that this brings us to, to a very interesting question with quite a surprising answer that is discussed by the Chasam Sofer. The Chasam Sofer, in his commentary to the Torah, he asks, uh, if I could use the expression with regards to Parshas Noah, he asks something of a deconstructive question. And that is, why is Noah told to make an ark? why is Noah told that the way that he and his family and those animals will be saved is through making an ark and should you ask well is there any other option there is an easy option according to the Gemara the flood did not affect the land of Israel which means he just could have spent the year in the land of Israel he could have moved to Renana for the year and and and, and, and enjoyed relative peace and quiet. Yet HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, no, you need to build an ark. And we should not think that an ark is even an, a natural way to save all of those species of animals. The ark is not that big. 300 cubits by 50 cubits? What is that? <coughs> That's... That's 150 meters by, by 25 meters. That's not a lot. Even if it's sheer Chazanish, it's still not a lot. And by the way, if the ark was sheer Chazanish, the animals were also sheer Chazanish. So it's not going to help. The Ramban states explicitly that the capacity of the Noah's ark <coughs> to contain all of these life forms was miraculous. Yet still it needed to be done. And the Khasam Sofa raises a second question, and that is, why does the flood take a year? The background to the question is, the punishment for the generation of the flood did not need to take more than one or two days. I mean, there, you have this torrential, boiling hot uh, flood. By the end of the first day, maximum the second day, it's finished. But as far as the year of the flood is concerned, it's just beginning. The flood goes for 40 days, and then it's a, and it's a year before, before the whole thing is over. But why does something that should have taken a short amount of time take such a long time? And that is why the Chassam Sofer says, <coughs> Noah, and we'll, we, we always need to come back to what the Torah says about Noah. It calls him a tzaddik. So if you're ever wondering yes or no, the answer is yes, he's a tzaddik. And yet, as we said, Noah is not able to prevail or influence, prevail upon or influence the people in his generation. And because that's true, during the time that they're punished and even beyond, Noah doesn't perish in the Mabel, but he does not escape punishment. And his punishment is the very difficult year of the flood and here I think we are somehow misled if you ever seen pictures of Noah's Ark it doesn't it seems very pleasant the Sun is shining and Noah is, and his wife are smiling everyone they're about to, to, to go on a pleasure cruise even the animals are smiling somehow and that that is misleading because the truth is it was an extremely difficult year For Noah, and interestingly, we get a first-hand description of what life in the ark was like from one of the people who was there. How does this come out? The Medrash Tehillim tells us (coughs) that Avram had opportunity to interview, so to speak, Noah's son Shem. Where does Avram meet Shem in next week's parsha? According to Chazal, shame is none other than Malkitzedek, King of Shalem, <coughs> and Malkitzedek meets Avram when Avram goes to war uh, over those four kings. He goes to, to rescue his nephew, and then he defeats them. And Malkitzedek brings out refreshments for Avram and his soldiers. Umalkitzedek, Melech Hotzi Lechem And interestingly, the Medrash relates that Avram used that opportunity to question Shem about this very unique year (coughs) in in human history, the year of the flood. I personally find it very interesting that the implication of this medrash is that if Avram had not met Malkit in the war, he never would have asked him this question, which itself is quite interesting, because one would have thought that Malkit is there in Shalem, which is in Yerushalayim, He would presumably one of the people that Avran would most want to make a point of meeting, just to talk to him or to find out anything from him. And yet it seems (coughs) that it's not until they, they, so to speak, happen to meet in the war that Avran takes advantage of the opportunity and then says, No, so what was the year of the flood like? But he does. And Shem says, it was awful. It was horrendous. He says, we didn't sleep properly the whole year. It was round the clock, caring for all these animals. Everyone has a different clock. Everyone has a different timetable, different dietary requirements. And and it was from one thing to the other. It was absolutely horrendous. Wow. So why is it done like this? Because this, and these are the Hassan Sofer's words. This is punishment for Noah. If Noah hasn't brought anyone else into, he hasn't brought any people into the ark. So let him take care of the animals at great cost, with great effort. In fact, the very lining of the ark is called, in the words of the pasuk, "Kofer v'chafarta osah." You shall coat it. Mi'baes mi ba kofer. What is kofer? Tar. <coughs> now tar has other. Words for it in Lashana Kodesh. It could be called uh, zefes or, or, or whatever it is. And In fact, when, uh, when Moshe's basket is coated with tar, it's called Zephet. Zephet is tar. It's not normally called Kofir. You can call it that, but it's not its normal name. Why is it called Kofir here, <coughs> says the Aushich? Because it's indicating that the whole enterprise of the Teva is one of Kofir for Noah. It's Kapara. He needs atonement for, for what happened. And I think there's room again. We're on delicate uh, territory, but these are important uh, discussions. There's room to say a bit further. Noach is told uh, again. These opening psukim makes the teva kinim ta'aseh teva. Where is that in pasuk yud dalit, perik vav pasuk yud dalit? Asel Go for make for you this. <coughs> this uh, Teva of gopher wood. Gopher wood, by the way, is cedar wood. And the Midrash says, like the Mishkan was made of cedar wood, the Teva is made of cedar wood. Again, further uh, underscoring the parity between the Mishkan and the Teva. <laughs> you shall make the ark Kinim. What does Kinim mean? Kinim means booths. Separate compartments for each Animals. That's what kinim means. But there is a medrash. Again, it's quite, a, it's quite a, a startling comment of the medrash. That the word kinim relates to, has another association. Kinim are birds' nests. In fact, there's a masechta of Mishnah. It's called masechis kinim. I think it's the last one. And what kinim last one in Kotchan is to say, and what kinim is, <coughs> is are pairs of birds that are brought for a korban. They're called a nest, kinim. And the halachas of kinim is what if they get mixed up with each other? It can get very complicated. But kinim are birds' nests, pairs of birds for a korban. So, says the Medrash, when Hashem says to Noah that the ark is, is to be kinim, it's telling Noah that he needs the same expiation that someone else who brings kinim a set of birds needs who brings a set of birds for their purification a mitzora someone who's got saras says the medrash just like a mitzora needs kinim to atone for him so you need kinim like a mitzora to atone for you and that is a very <coughs> striking comment after all we 're not aware that Noah ever spoke Lahanhar about anyone. We have no record of him speaking speaking Lahanhar. Who was there to talk to? So <clears throat> I think what it means is, is like this: If we wish to begin to understand <clears throat> why it was that Noah never really exerted himself to try and persuade the people of this generation to better their ways somehow. <coughs> to bring them round the, the simple answer perhaps is that he looked at them he saw how corrupt they were and no one was more vexed and pained <coughs> by the corruption of his generation than Noah he looks at them and says it won't work there's no hope they're beyond salvage I mean, people like this cannot come back it is corruption pathological to its core Practically ideological. There's no one to talk to. There's no one to work with. Says the Medrash. that's loshen Hara. It is the first case of loshen Hara that we have that a person is found, again, you're not guilty of this unless you're Noah. You have to be on that level for this to be an indictment. But Noah <coughs> is indicted for loshen Hara that he never said or to put it slightly different, if we would ask, what did Noach do already that he's considered to have spoken of, uh, to have spoken Lashon Hara? The answer is, he didn't do anything. That's where the Lashon Hara is. Because, because implicit in his inactivity is a conviction that there is no hope for them. And Hashem says, there is never no hope for people. So Noach needs kin, and Noach needs kofer, and, and all of that. So much so, two final points the first we referred to already <coughs> Noah is in the Teva for a year the, the generation of Noah don't need a year to be punished they're finished by the second day but Noah needs a year in the Teva it's not just for them it's also for him and his program of, of, uh, of expiation is not completed until he goes a full yearly cycle in the Teva And the Chassam Sofer says further, there are certain things you have to be the Chassam Sofer to say. But Rashi tells us uh, (coughs) that when the flood came, Noah had to be pushed in. It says that he he entered the ark due to the water, which means he didn't want to go into the ark. But he was forced in. And many Mepharshim say he didn't want to go into the ark because he was hoping until the very end that Hashem would ha- perhaps <coughs> have Rahmanus on his generation and not bring the flood so he wouldn't have to go in. But the Khassam Sofer says no. Noach is forced in because he's hoping until the very last minute that Hashem will have Rahmanus on him and not make him go into the ark where a very, very difficult and trying year is waiting for him. Maybe there'll be some other way. But in the end, Shem said, that's the path that you chose. They're out there. You're in here. It's in the ark for a year. (coughs) So these are uh, very (coughs) sensitive, certainly, discussions with regards to Noach. But I would like to, again, so many clouds in Parshas Noach, there is a silver lining. And it comes out from that from that dis- that conversation as is mentioned uh, in the Medrash Tehillim between Shem and Avram what was it like in the Teva it was awful right? I mean, Noah gets mauled by the lion he's a little bit late <coughs> so very difficult and that conversation I think is quite well known this exchange between Avram and Shem what was it like? absolutely horrendous but then the Medrash continues. And the Medrash says, Avram, after this conversation, and you have to work out the chronology and the, the uh, sequence, etc. After this conversation, says the Medrash, Avram began to reflect. And he came to the following conclusion Noah received his atonement, and it was a great merit for him by taking care of animals says Avram, what if I would do the same for people? Imagine how great the reward would be. Imagine what a wonderful enterprise that would be, says the Medrish. Avram, as a result of that conversation, began his enterprise of hospitality for which he became famous. It is an incredible (coughs) moment, really, as given to us by the Medrish. Because now we're told that the hospitality for which Avram is so renowned was inspired by a conversation with Shem about Noah. And why is this, in a sense, closer circle for us? In many respects, Noah suffers in comparison with Avram. You know from the opening Rashi, well, in his generation he's a tzaddik, <coughs> in Avram's generation, who knows, maybe not so much, etc. Avram is always up there, and Noach is always down here it seems and yet the Midrash is saying that in some respects I mean noah did not become avram but noah actually has a hand in avram becoming avram because the kindness that he was uh, brought into in the teva became the springboard for avram's kindness that became avram so the, the the connection between them is perhaps a little bit closer than we otherwise may have thought so. That's that's an important uh, P.S. to the whole situation with regards to Avraminah. Let's conclude uh, on a brighter uh, note, if one could say, by talking about the rainbow, and that is to be found in Tess, pasuk. Well, a number of psukim, but if we have a look at pasuk, pasuk Yud Gimel, <coughs> and this is the famous sign that. Hashem uh, will never bring uh, a flood again. Periktes, posuk, yud gimel. Es ba'anan, I've placed my, the rainbow in a cloud, v'is Baris os beini uvein and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the world. And whenever there will be <coughs> clouds foreshadowing a, a flood, perhaps, the rainbow will be there and there will never be a flood again. Rishonim raised a simple question what does it mean that the rainbow is, is now is a sign for no, no more flood as if to say <coughs> before the flood were there, were there no rainbows is, is it something that has has uh, been created for this purpose and the background to the question is if it's true that what a, that what a rainbow is is effectively light refracting uh, off droplets of rain. I mean, that is a physical thing. I mean, that's, that's uh, physics involved. <coughs> so that means that the rainbow presumably would have existed beforehand. So how is it something that said, and this is now the sign? It's existed before. What did it mean before? Indeed, there are certain uh, Rishonim, Abarbanel and, uh, and others, Ibn Ezra perhaps also, who maintain or suggest but actually no. Before the flood there were no rainbows and the reason why is because <clears throat> as much as we're familiar with how a rainbow works, the light waves are refracting off the moisture, etc, <clears throat> that is all the atmosphere of the world as we have it now. But we don't know what things were like in the antediluvian period. Before the flood, who knows? We know that many things were different and perhaps this was also different and, and, and maybe the way that rain worked did not lend itself to have this moisture post-rainfall that the light waves could refract off. And perhaps, therefore, there was no rainbow beforehand. It really is a sign of the times. It's something that exists only in the post-flood setup of of, uh, rain and so on and so forth. (coughs) The Ramban, however, is inclined to, uh, to, to see the rainbow as something that existed before the flood but as much as it existed before the flood, it now receives added significance. It has attained another designation. In fact, according to the Ramban, and if we keep an eye on the Loshina Kodesh here, we see the possibilities. <coughs> Hosegiud Gimel again reads Eskashti, my rainbow, Nosati Be'anan. Nosati Be'anan. Now, Nosati, in the past tense, could mean one of two things. It can mean uh, I have I have ne- I have placed in the in the clouds, meaning I have now placed in the clouds. But nasati in the pure past tense could mean I have already placed it in the clouds. But from this point onwards, it attains it assumes this other aspect of vahisa leosperis. So so what does it mean to have something which exists already and now becomes the sign of the covenant? Says Ramban, very interesting explanations. How does the rainbow mean no more flood? (coughs) It happens to be that a bow is an instrument of war. Bow and arrow. However, a bow with no string is a disabled bow. In other words, in the rainbow, you have the curved part of the bow, but that's all you have. As if to say that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has disarmed the flood mechanism, it is now a bow without a string. That is one possibility. Secondly, and equally interesting, says Ramban, when people make peace with each other, and of course they'll they'll never be without their weapons, but when they make peace with each other, if they're carrying bows as an overture of peace, if they have a bow, they will reverse it as they approach the other side. In other words, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to do anything to the world, the bow would be facing the world, but it's actually facing away as if HaKadosh Baruch is saying, peace, the bow has been reversed. Interesting discussions. An accompanying question <coughs> as to whether the rainbow is a natural phenomenon uh, or, or perhaps maybe even supernatural, the sister question to this is always, with reference, Rashi even quoted and the Gemara talks about it in the Medrash, there were some very righteous individuals whose righteousness is signified by the fact that a rainbow was never seen in their time. Uh, famous among them are Hiskiel <laughs> HaMelech, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. <coughs> so, So the question is, if it's a natural phenomenon, it's a little bit difficult to understand why it wouldn't be seen in their time, as if to say moisture worked differently in their time, as much as their sadiqim. Was this a miracle to suspend the conditions that allow for a rainbow? And some people say yes. And if miracles happen, so they happen. But it's most interesting (laughs) to consider a very different uh, approach to this matter, which is found in one of the works of the Ramah. The Ramah, the Ramah Rabbeinu Moshe Iserlis, <coughs> who's famous, of course, for his halachic notes on the Aruch. he is the preeminent halachic authority for, for Ashkenazi uh, uh, Jews. But he also had a number of other works, <coughs> one of which was called Teras HaOla. Teras HaOla discusses all matters relating to the Besamikdash and Korbanos, very, very deep and detailed, safer. He goes through every single aspect of every single uh, Korban. Uh, it's really quite something. And of course, as is the way of Torah, along the way he will digress and have parenthetical comments, etc. <coughs> and one of his comments relates to this issue. No rainbow in the time of Bshim Ben Yochai. What does that mean? The laws of physics were miraculously suspended... Says the Ramah, no. If you look in the beginning of Parshas Kosai, when it describes how things will be if, if the Jewish people are as they should be, so the early one at the early Psukim says, I will give your reins in their time. And the question is, what does it mean in their time? Seasonally in the right time? Rashi cites, <coughs> again from the Medrash, in their time means, in a good time for rain to come. When is it a good time for rain to come? When everyone's home. When is everyone home? Nighttime. Specifically, Leo Shabbos. Everyone's home. What about Shalom Zachrus? I don't know. The best time for the rain to fall <coughs> is, is 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 the night. So, so the pasuk tells the Jewish people that if you are, if you are acting as you should, the rains will fall at night, and if you have tzaddikim. They certainly reflect the Jewish people, their generation, as they should be. So, says the Ramah, the only time light will fail to refract off water droplets following a rainfall is if it rains at night. And that is what the Medrash means when it says you had these individuals, they never saw a rainbow because it never rained during the day. Very... Uh, elegant explanation of the Ramah in the Sefer Torah Sa'ola. and perhaps <coughs> if we can try and bring everything together it is very interesting that the sign of no flood is a rainbow and it's a message who's it a message for? <coughs> well amongst everyone else says Rabbi Meir Shapiro it's a message for Noach and what's the message? Noach essentially was surrounded by clouds even before the rain started falling in the flood. In other words, what is a cloud? A cloud is, is an, an entity which does not allow light to penetrate. And that basically is the way that Noah looked at the people in his generation. There's no getting through to them. They are thick clouds. You shine a light on them, it will stop. Nothing will, Nothing will get through to them. And that, in a sense, is part of uh, Noach's uh, requiring uh, atonement like, like a Mitzvah, etc. Clear to him, they will never see the light. It will never get through to them. And <coughs> HaKadosh Baruch Hu shows Noach the rainbow. And what does the rainbow say? It says, sometimes, it's specifically through a cloud that, it's, that the light can get through. And when it does, it creates an entity and a spectacle which is glorious. And that can be what happens. A person can start with a cloud, but the light can get through to them. And when light does get through a cloud, you get a rainbow with all of the colors and and so on and so forth. And people are like that. I think there's room to say, but again, it is certainly a parenthetical comment, that (coughs) sometimes it's specifically the cloud-like people that when the rain gets through, they see all the colors in the cloud. All the, on the rainbow, all the colors in the rainbow are really there in light the whole time, but they 're not noticed because it just takes the the generic form of light and For people who aren 't cloud people and who aren 't you know, thick cloud people and, and so they see the light and they 're guided by it. sometimes the light is broken up and appreciated specifically by someone who started as a cloud. And then they're presented with the light of Torah and they begin to dissect it and they begin to refract it <coughs> and notice things that perhaps other people wouldn't have noticed because they took it for granted for all the right reasons. And those are, those are rainbow people. So this concludes our discussions with regards to Noah and I think it's, it's probably uh, correct to say in summation because one always needs to be uh, very careful with these types of discussions on the one hand one has to one has to find the balance if the torah talks about it it means you're meant to talk about it but there's a way to talk about it (coughs) in other words what we don't want (coughs) is to reach a situation where we just can't enjoy our shabbos meal uh, without someone in the parsha having been at fault or done something wrong it's just that the cholent won't taste the same that's, that is not a correct way to, to discuss the faults of the greats in the Torah. They're there, but I think what they, what they are there predominantly for is to, it, the, the discussion begins with them. It doesn't end with them. It ends with us. By which I mean, it's very easy to sit back and talk about Noah could have done more for the people in his generation, should have had more faith in the people in his generation, and never join the dots between us and our generation. But if that's true, then we have not really justified the discussion because the correct conclusion with regards to this is always a question mark. And the question mark is, well, now that we've seen what Noah had to go through, have we learned a lesson from him? Are there people that we know who we basically feel are beyond salvage or or, or aren't worth the effort or there's no point in trying and so if If it generates that question and moreover generates perhaps a move to, to action to get light through those clouds where otherwise we would have perhaps given up and try and be searching for those rainbows, then indeed it will be a most worth worthwhile discussion. We'll leave it over here for this evening. I wish you all a, a good night, a wonderful week ahead. All the best. Oh, thank you.